0: As we get started this morning with our, our message, I, a little illustration here I need some help from a couple of kids with. Emma Kate, you want to help out? All right, I'll let you help. Yes, I know she's my daughter, but I'll let her help out anyway. All right, someone else, other than one of my other children, to help out with an illustration this morning. All right, come on up here. Now, I want to ask both of you which one of you two like chocolate? You do? Okay. You like it a whole lot? Okay, so I'm going to give you some chocolate, all right? So you can open that up, but don't eat it yet. Don't start biting into it yet. I just want you to hang on for a second. So I'm going to give you some chocolate as well. Now, I want you to start off, taste, taste that chocolate, and tell me if it's good, if you like it. Just one little bite, and then you put the rest in there so that you won't ruin your Easter lunch. Mmm, is it good? All right, is it sweet? Yummy? All right, I want you to take a bite of yours real quick. It's kind of hard, I'm sorry, but just take the bite best you can. Is it good? Uh-uh. Are you okay? All right, you took a big bite of that. As It's kind of hard. You're not liking that too much. I don't think you like chocolate anymore. You're looking at me like you're mad at me. Are you okay? You see, yours was missing something that hers wasn't. that really makes me look like I was biased. I should have switched these. I'm sorry. Yours doesn't have any, any sugar in it, right? So it's kind of bitter. Would you like something to drink? Hold on right there. I'm sorry. Here you go. I'm sorry, Rosemary family. All right, she will never do an illustration ever again in any sermon. Are you Okay. You know what? I've got the rest of that chocolate bar in my office. I'll give it to you, okay? But wait till after the service, but you probably don't want that one, do you? It's pretty nasty. All right, y'all have a seat real quick. Thank y'all for helping me out this morning. And Mark, could you get me another glass of water? Now, that piece of chocolate, if you take it out and you smell it, it smells wonderful. It smells absolutely tasty and And when I smell chocolate, I want to eat chocolate. When I come home and there's chocolate chip cookies or something on the oven, I get excited. And you smell that and you look at it, it looks great. But when you taste it, you realize it's missing a very vital ingredient to make it a very pleasant experience. It's missing sugar. And when it's missing that sugar, it's just nasty, it's bitter, and uh, you want to kind of spit it out. And so this morning, what illustration I'm trying to draw from that is simply this. We need to understand that the gospel isn't just about the cross, but also about the resurrection. The resurrection is a vital ingredient to the gospel that we cannot leave out. Matter of fact, Paul goes out of his way in 1 Corinthians 15, which is where we're going to be today. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 to make a very strong point that if the resurrection doesn't exist, both the resurrection in general, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that resurrection doesn't exist, then then guess what? You're missing the vital ingredient to the gospel. And it's not a glorious and wonderful thing without the resurrection. It's a bitter and sad thing without the resurrection. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there if you would. We're going to read verses 1 through 25 here in a second. The whole chapter of 15 of 1 Corinthians is about the resurrection we're just going to focus on the first 25 verses today. And even the time we have today, we can't do justice to all 25 of those verses. But let me give you a little context real quick as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, obviously, in Corinth. Corinth was a very important city of Paul's day, but it was also a very sinful city. The letter was written around AD 53, between 53 and 55, meaning ...that it was written just 20 years, only 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's one of, therefore, the earliest, if not the earliest, book that we have in the New Testament. Now the church that Paul is writing to is quite troubled. There's factions, there's immorality... There's idolatry, there's people seeking personal glory, there's people neglecting those in need, there's jealousy, there's misuse of the ordinances of baptism and misuse of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there's a lack of love. Sounds like a lot of churches today, doesn't it? I mean, this, is, this pretty much fits into a lot of the church today, but one of the things that they were dealing with in this church was a doubt regarding the resurrection. And so that's what Paul is addressing here ...in chapter 15, and he zeroes in on the issue of the resurrection and how important it is to the gospel. So, on this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection, let us hear from Paul and from our Lord through Paul. So please stand, if you would, as we read God's Word. The Bible is authoritative. It is infallible and inerrant. It is the Word of God. It is as if God's presence were right here, right now, speaking to us audibly. Well, He is, through His Word. It carries that much authority, so First Corinthians fifteen, beginning in verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so he preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits... Then has his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would take this word and use it like a double-edged sword, and penetrate our hearts with it. Father, we know that your word never returns void. So, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear it. Give me a mouth to speak it. We know that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's pretty amazing to me when I consider... Some of the things that people are willing to believe. I mean, things that have no evidence whatsoever that people are willing to believe. For example, I ran across an article this week about some strange beliefs of some celebrities. So let me give you a few examples. Fran Drescher, if you know who she is, the nanny or whatever. Fran Drescher is convinced that she and her husband were abducted by aliens and experimented upon. She lives in fear every day that they're coming back. Megan Fox believes that leprechauns and the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot couldn't have just come out of people's imagination. They have to be real. Russell Crowe is a staunch believer in UFOs and gets in arguments on chat rooms about UFOs, believe it or not. And Shirley MacLaine once believed that her husband, Steve, was not actually her husband and the father of her child, but a clone of an astronaut Named Paul. And her husband Steve was able to subsequently con her out of $60,000 a month to pay for space travel expenses to see Paul. And she believed it. And paid $60,000 a month to her husband Steve. Now these are bizarre things. Bizarre things with zero evidence. Yet I would guess that these same people, all the people I just mentioned, I would guess as with most of the people in our nation and in our world, would quickly dismiss the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fanciful myth, a silly tale, or even an outright deception. All of this despite the overwhelming evidence that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is a certifiable historical event. But I'm not surprised by those who, outside the church, fail to believe in the resurrection. Even though it possesses a load of evidential support, I'm not surprised because unregenerate men do not accept the things of God. They cannot. Only those whose hearts have been turned toward God can fully accept the things of God. What I am surprised by is when those inside the church begin to question the key doctrines of the church, like the resurrection. So that's what's happening in Paul's day. There's people in the church now questioning the resurrection, and Paul's day is no different than ours Apparently, he's facing some people who are asking some serious questions or are causing doubt within the church about the resurrection. Verse 12, he says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what resurrection are they talking about? Just a general resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the saints, or the resurrection of Christ? Well, it doesn't matter because they deny one, they deny all of them. If there is no resurrection, no general resurrection, there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, there were some in the church whose beliefs were doing damage to the gospel because they were casting doubt on whether or not our Lord Jesus had actually risen and whether or not it was even important. So here we stand, Easter Sunday, 2013, proclaiming that he is alive, that he has risen, and it is of first importance that we believe this. Paul ties in this passage the resurrection of Christ very closely to the essence of the gospel itself. They are inseparable truths. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, I would remind you. Now, he's not telling them something new. He's just reminding them of the gospel he's already preached. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So, the gospel that they're standing firm on. Verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain notice the theme of the the passing of truth he preached and they received then verse 2 i preached and you believed so the gospel is a set of of truths that are being passed on as the gospel continues to be preached and proclaimed. It is being received and believed. It's like a, a relay race. So here we stand 2,000 years later, and those of us in here who have believed in Jesus Christ, who have believed the gospel, have, have received that baton, and it's our, all of our responsibility to continue to reach it out and continue to proclaim it and teach it so that others will receive it and believe it. So we see that theme here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 of, of, of preaching and receiving, of proclaiming and believing. And so Paul wants to make sure that he knows that these guys have the gospel down. You've got to have it down. You've got to believe what it was that I preached to you. Now Paul gets more specific about the gospel in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There's that theme again. I I delivered what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he goes on to talk about more appearances. So what are the ingredients of the gospel? We talked about chocolate without the right ingredients. What's the gospel? What are the right ingredients? Well, the death and burial and the resurrection and the appearances. So death and resurrection are the key ingredients... To the gospel. Both the death, the cross, and the resurrection are essential elements of the gospel. To leave out one is to leave us with a bitter faith that cannot save. If you claim to be a Christian and you have received or believed in a faith that doesn't embrace the literal, bodily, historical resurrection of Christ, then you have believed something other than the gospel and it's worthless. Let me say that to you this morning. If you're here, there's a lot of people I don't know here this morning, praise God. But I'm telling you, I don't know you. If you have believed in a gospel that does not say Jesus literally rose from the grave with a physical body at a moment in time in history and he appeared to his disciples and to 500 others, then you were believing in a gospel that cannot save you. It's not the gospel that Paul was passing on. The death and the resurrection our inseparable elements, ingredients of the gospel. How important is the resurrection? Well, Paul says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. There's that theme again. Preaching in faith. Proclaiming and receiving. Well, it's all in vain. The whole relay race has been foolishness if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. There's no prize at the end of that race. Just foolishness if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. But the fact of the matter is, the tomb is empty, and therefore our faith is full. If the tomb of your faith is full, then your faith is empty. But the tomb is empty. Our faith is full and true. John Stott said that Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of the resurrection lies at the heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Christian philosopher John Locke once said, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah still stands or falls on it. So I've got two points this morning that I want to just drive home as we continue to go through this passage this this morning. I'm not going to be able to touch on this whole passage. I wish I could, but this morning I'm just going to have to focus on a few things. If we have received there's the relay race, if we have received and pass on a gospel on which we can stand and by which we are being saved, remember verse 1, this is the gospel on which you stand and by which you're being saved, then we believe, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical certainty. We stand on a historical fact. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniable historical truth. The tomb is really empty. Now, people want to come up with all sorts of explanations to deal with the empty tomb, don't they? Uh, If you were here at Secret Church, you heard some of those uh, on Friday night. So, people do so, they come up with these explanations, despite the evidence. Because if the resurrection were a real historical event, then the theological claims of Jesus have to be real, too. So, people have to find a way to explain the historical event in a different way. So, there's all sorts of the, the usual suspects out there that, well, the disciples stole the body. Or that Jesus was simply in some sort of coma and somehow was able to get out of the tomb afterwards. Or that the women and the disciples simply went to the wrong tomb. Or that the disciples in their grief experienced some sort of delusional hallucination. All of them. 500 of them at the same time. Or worse, and something that's very prevalent in the church today is that Jesus' resurrection wasn't physical. It was just spiritual a few years ago a reporter asked the anglican archbishop of australia this was the question he says if we discovered the tomb of jesus today and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were jesus's remains what would that do to your faith the archbishop replied it wouldn't do anything to his faith he said jesus has risen in my heart friends I'm afraid that the Apostle Paul understands the issues with much more straightforward clarity. He says, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. If Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. In other words, part of the validation of faith is the truthfulness of of our faith's object. In this case, the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has not been raised, we can believe it till the cows come home, but it's a futile belief. And we will be of all people most to be pitied. We stand on truth, on a true event in time and space, a specific moment in history. Look again at what Paul says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. I want you to focus on the word died and buried. And then he says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. So he was raised, and then he appeared. He died and was buried. The burial testifies to the fact that he was dead. He died a real death, a physical death, and he was buried. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't almost dead. He was dead, dead. You bury dead people. And I said there's some in here that believe, or some in here, I don't know, I hope there was not, there's some in, in the world that believe that Jesus was just in some sort of coma. That is a terrible insult to the Romans because they were very good at killing people. They did two things very well. They, they built very good roads, and they killed people. They did both of them very well. And it's an insult to the Romans if you think that Jesus wasn't dead. If there's anything they knew how to do, it was to make sure that a crucified man was dead. And they did kill Jesus, and in doing so, they paved another road, a narrow road to heaven. So he died and was buried. And Paul also says he was raised, and then he appeared. He appeared. The appearance testifies to the fact of the resurrection. Just as the burial testifies to the death, the appearance testifies to the resurrection. He really rose again. He walked out of that tomb. And as he walked out, according to Paul, he walked out on the third day. Showing that it was a dateable event. It was witnessed. It was dated. It was a verifiable historical event. No passage is more clear than this one here in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at the next few verses here, beginning in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now the legal requirements and. Uh, for a fact to be verified both in the Old Testament and the New Testament was the witness of two or three people. In antiquity, the law required two or three witnesses for a matter to be verified. Matter of fact, you see it in in, in Jesus' discussion of church discipline. He says, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul provides one, Cephas, then a bunch more, the twelve, and then 500, and then James and the other apostles and the author of this very letter. The burden of proof had been easily met. Essentially, Paul is challenging the doubters in Corinth to check it out. Just just check it out. Verify the truth. Look at all these people that have seen him alive. You can check it out. Remember, I said early on that this book, this letter, was only written 20 years after the death of Jesus. It could have easily been checked out. Let me just illustrate that real quickly. Okay, so I'm going to go back 20 years in my life. It's 2013. 20 years ago, I was in college, 1993. That blows my mind away to think that it was that long ago. 20 years ago, I'm in college, and I played on a soccer team. Matter of fact, I was the starting goalkeeper for Hardin-Simmons University soccer team. You may look at me and say, you look a little too round to play soccer. You may doubt that I played. And I could even hold up a trophy. So no, 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 I played. And you're thinking, where would you go buy that? Like at Kinko's or something? You, you may doubt. You, doubt. you doubt the trophy. You, you doubt my words. But you know what? I had a bunch of guys that played with me, that saw me play, that saw me get that trophy, and I could go take you to them. And as far as I know, none of them have fallen asleep. And they could tell you, oh yeah, he played. He was okay. He played. It's a verifiable event. And so here we stand, and no one's denying that the tomb is empty. The trophy's there. But people don't want to believe the word. And Paul's saying, well, just go talk to the rest of the team. Go go talk. Go talk to the 500 or more that saw Jesus alive. On top of this, there's other evidences. The, the willingness of the disciples to suffer and die in order to preach a risen Christ. The Jewish leaders' inability to produce a body in order to stop them from preaching the risen Christ. I mean, they say, stop preaching this Jesus, that he's risen. I mean, surely the council sitting there going, okay, what's the best way to stop this? Oh, I know. Let's just go get the body and sit it in the middle of the, of the courtyard here and the people will stop preaching about it. And they didn't do that. The radical change in the lives of people like Paul who encountered the risen Christ. The fact, like I already said, that the tomb is very much empty. And the complete lack of counter evidence that Jesus is dead. Thomas Arnold, formerly a professor of history at Rugby and Oxford, one of the world's greatest historians, is quoted as saying, I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ Jesus died and rose again from the dead. It is no exaggeration, therefore, to maintain that the bodily resurrection of Christ is is as certain as any fact in history ever could be. If, therefore, that is the case, then, friends, I ask you, why do you not believe? You don't believe because it's a heart issue. Not an evidence issue. Listen closely, friends. Christianity, unlike any other world religion, is irreducibly historical. Unlike Buddhism, if you challenge the claims of, of Buddhism and, and challenge the historicity of Buddha, it doesn't affect the system. It's a belief of systems that has no inherent tie to history. Or, or Hinduism. Hinduism. If you challenge the historicity of any of the Hindu gods, they just pick from one of the million other ones. It's not tied to history and to reality. And even Islam, even though Islamists believe and Muslims believe that Muhammad was a real person in history, and he was a real person in history, their faith is tied to the the message that that Muhammad supposedly received from Allah. That was the message he received, and, and so theoretically, God could have used anybody else. Muhammad was just the final prophet of the final message. So it's not tied to the historicity of Muhammad. It's tied to the message. But my friends, in Christianity, Christ is the message. Christ is the message. Therefore, if he did not literally, physically die at a moment in time in history and then rise again in a moment in time in history, then the message is null and void. 1 John 1.1, the Apostle John says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard..." Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. A real historical person named Jesus died for the sins of his people and rose again. So if Christ is not a real historical figure, if he did not die a real historical death, if he did not rise from the dead in a real historical moment in time, then our faith is shipwrecked. Look at the ramifications if that's the case. Verse 13 and following. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Then Jesus is dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then well, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's just empty. We are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So that means that I'm a liar. We're all just liars, deceiving the world. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So I want you to see that not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ a historical certainty that we have to believe in. The next thing I want us to see, number two in your points, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a soteriological necessity. That means it's necessary for salvation. It's a necessity for our faith. It's a necessity for salvation. The resurrection of Jesus is a key historical ingredient to the gospel on which we stand. The gospel by which we are being saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a saving necessity. Without the resurrection, you cannot be saved. All the Bible points to the cross, but the Bible also points to the resurrection. I'm always talking about how all the Bible points to the cross, but it also points to the resurrection. That's what Paul says here. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, but that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now you might say, wait a second, isn't the, the death of Jesus what's most important? Wasn't it his death that took away our sins? Isn't forgiveness, atonement, ransom, appeasement of wrath all bound up in, in Jesus' death? I say yes, yes, and yes, but the Scriptures never separate the resurrection of Christ From his death, you cannot divorce the two. That's why Paul said in verse 17, if Christ hasn't risen, then you're still in your sins. But praise be to God that he has been raised. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we see the salvific work of God to free us from the bondage of our edemic edemic nature, the guilt that we we inherited from Adam, but also the sinful nature we inherited from Adam. We see it being dealt with not only on the cross, but also at the tomb. The Scriptures teach us that the resurrection ensures various aspects of our salvation. So let me just go through these. These blanks on your notes there. I'm going to go through four Aspects of your salvation that that are totally dependent upon the resurrection and the scriptures clearly teach it. First of all, your regeneration, your birth, your spiritual birth, your being born again. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection guaranteed eternal life and a resurrected body, but it also means we are made alive spiritually. We are born again, we are regenerated, we are made new. The clearest teaching on this is in 1 Peter 1 Peter 1 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, this new life that we receive when we become Christians flows from the new or the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. But not only our regeneration, our new birth, but also. Secondly, in your notes there, our justification, our right standing before God is tied to the resurrection. Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 22 in, in 1 Corinthians 15 here says that in Adam all die. Why? Because we have inherited a sinful, rebellious nature from our first father Adam. And we have also inherited his guilt. Therefore, we are all sinners before God deserving an eternal hell. If you are alive, if you are human, then you have inherited a sinful nature. And not only that, you've inherited the guilt of Adam. And you deserve eternal hell. Thus, we need to have our sin dealt with. We're all sinners before a holy God. We need to have our sin dealt with. We need to be justified, meaning we need to be declared not guilty before our judge, our God, the Lord Almighty. Our justification, the declaration that we are not guilty before God is solely based upon the fact that Jesus was our atoning sacrifice for sin. On the cross, his death, and at the empty tomb, the resurrection, my friends, what it did is that it demonstrated that Christ's sacrifice was utterly complete. That Christ's sacrifice was fully received. That Christ's sacrifice was absolutely accepted. That Christ's sacrifice is thoroughly sufficient. It is the gavel coming down in the courtroom of heaven saying, Not guilty. The empty tomb is the not guilty verdict for all who are united to Christ. Amen. Amen. It is the not guilty verdict only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're still in your sin. Do you see why the resurrection is important? Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The empty tomb is the proof that Jesus did indeed earn our justification. But the resurrection of Jesus also plays a huge role in our sanctification. Number three. Sanctification is our spiritual growth and holiness. When we read in verse 22 that in Christ shall all be made alive, we can see that Paul is talking about more than simply our regeneration, as glorious as that is, but also about our our newness of life that we are now called to walk in. New life, friends, inevitably leads to a new way of life. If you are born again, you are born to a new way of life. And, And that is secured through the resurrection. His resurrection secured that we would walk in a newness of life. Romans 6.4 We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 3.1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you have been raised with Christ, if the tomb is really empty, if Jesus really rose again, if he really lives today and you've really been united to him by faith. My friends, you cannot live like the world lives. You are a risen man and you are living in a new way. You are walking in a new life. And you can't help it. You're not going to walk back where the dead people are and do what dead people do. You're going to do what living people do. Is that, that is, they set their mind on the things above. They set their mind on the things of God. But finally, the fourth blank there in your notes is that also the resurrection secures our glorification. Glorification. The final victory over death and the imperishable bodies we are to receive is what we mean by glorification. Verse 23 says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ has been raised, he is the firstfruits, then at his coming, when he returns, we will be raised with him. All those who have passed, all those who have fallen asleep, like Paul talks about, they have not perished if they are in Christ they are with him their spirits are with him and they are awaiting their resurrected bodies and so we too will have resurrected bodies when Christ returns the fact that Christ has been risen has risen is the assurance that we too will rise that we belong to Christ meaning that we've been united to him 1 Corinthians 6:14 and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power That's our confidence. 2 Corinthians 4.14 He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It is our union with Christ that ensures these glorious truths. And it is that union with Christ that we also know we possess victory. For Christ's resurrection demonstrates his dominion. Christ's resurrection demonstrates his dominion. His dominion. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you are a Christian, and only if you are a Christian, you have placed all of your faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone, only if you are a believer in Jesus Christ can you say that his victory is also your victory. His victory is your victory if you are in Christ. So let me conclude our sermon by reading a little bit more from this glorious um, chapter in 1 Corinthians. Let me go down to verse 42 and just read along silently there with me. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is is imperishable. Think about these things. This is what our body going to be like. This is the, the glorification we're talking about. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written: The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Yes, we taunt you, death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Verse 56 The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Christians, we are not to be pitied. We are not to be pitied, for we believe and we have faith in a real resurrection. We have received the truth. We've received what has been passed on, a verifiable historical truth that our Lord has indeed risen from the grave. And through faith, we have been united to him so that we too have victory over the grave. Our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. The facts are on our side. History is on our side. And most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ is living and on our side. But unbeliever whoever you are out there this morning, and I know there are some here, will you submit this morning to the overwhelming evidence? Will you believe? Will you submit to the risen King? And I'll conclude our message with this, our memory verse from the week. Unbeliever, listen. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Unbeliever, call on the name of the risen Lord this morning. Believe in him. Believe that God has raised him from the dead. Confess him as Lord with your mouth and be saved. Let's so bow our heads, close our eyes. We'll conclude with prayer and a song. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Let me just encourage you this morning that this time of singing that we're about to participate in is not just a clever way to close a service. It's a time of response. We respond by bringing our offerings up here. We respond by bringing our prayer requests up here to these baskets in the bucket that's been talked about earlier. But far be it that we determine how we should respond We should submit to the Holy Spirit. If we need to respond by just coming up and kneeling and praying, if we need to pray where we're at in our seat, if someone here needs to speak to someone about the gospel, then I'm right up here at front to speak to you. This is the time to respond. Heavenly Father, we close this service praising the name of Jesus, that Jesus is our risen Lord. History testifies to the fact. But Father, I know at one time my eyes were blind. And I thought it was just all foolishness. No amount of evidence, despite the overwhelming amount that there is, could ever have convinced me that Jesus was Lord. Father, I thank you that you sent your spirit to convict my heart of sin, to turn my heart toward you, and my eyes were open. (laughs) And I've never been the same. And I know there's countless people in this room, Lord, who by your grace have been saved. And so, Lord, we beg that you would do a work in here. If there be anyone here who's never experienced that Romans 10:9, they've never carried out this confession with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They don't believe in their heart that you actually raised your son from the dead. Lord, I pray, Father, that your spirit would crush their rebellion right now. Lord, they are rebels, they are enemies of the cross. But glory be to our God. Glory be to you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, enemies, rebels, Christ died for us. So, Father, I pray that you would close this service by your spirit is moving as you see fit. To draw people to your throne of grace, however you see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.